You are God with us. Certainly the message of our season of Advent. Our reading at the very beginning of this service ended with one of the most read, if not the most read, passage of Scripture in the season of Advent, Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. And you get to that familiar refrain, For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Handel's Messiah probably did more to ingrain that in our psyche than even Isaiah's prophecy. But nonetheless, uh, these words bring laser-like focus to the meaning and the message, you see, of Christmas. Uh, This is the answer to man's greatest problem. This is the expression of God's greatest glory. His Son come in flesh to redeem us from our sin. But there's a short phrase in Isaiah 9 that we we often kind of move past. It it really is a tiny statement. And we often read past it because we're actually headed for the good stuff. You know, for the child to be born the son to be given, the government will rest on his shoulders, the end of his peace will have no end. We kind of want to get to that, and rightly so. Handel bypassed it. Uh, we don't sing it in carols. Uh, you, you'll not find this statement, this, you won't find this phrase written on any Christmas ornament or decorative item. But I think when we pass it, we actually miss one of the most important principles in the life of faith. And I think we actually miss the very thing that that enables us to take hold of the promise of the child who is to come. If you have your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah 9, I'm not going to go through the passage in depth. I want to focus on this one particular phrase and where this phrase will lead us. Let me give us our context. Understand when Isaiah spoke this prophecy, The nation of Israel was divided. There was the northern kingdom, Israel. There was the southern kingdom, Judah. Already we know that's not a good thing. It's not the way it was meant to be. But they are divided. The northern kingdom has aligned itself with a pagan king, kings, and they are surrounding Jerusalem, and they're going to destroy Jerusalem. They're, They're out to get rid of the southern kingdom. Uh, When the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, walks around the walls of Jerusalem and sees the siege that's beginning to build up around, he knows that it is certain defeat and it's going to be a slow, agonizing, you know, this is sieges, this is when they eat their own kids when they run out of food. This is when the water's gone, they slowly die a gruesome death. Isaiah says in Isaiah 7-2 of King Ahaz, says his heart and the hearts of his people shook like trees of the forest, shake in the wind. What a great picture. They were trembling for they had no hope. They looked around and they realized we have no future. When Isaiah spoke these words, you see, so when, we re- when you read of this great promise in Isaiah, he promised a child to deliver. He's making this promise in the midst 
of great darkness. I'm going to read it in a moment. Don't miss the contrast. Dark, light. It was darkness. There came light. Dark means no hope. Light means hope. Darkness. You get darkness, death, light, life. We'll see that in a moment. Now, in the midst of this darkness, okay, Ahaz is trembling and he makes a terribly costly error. Rather than trusting the words through the prophet Isaiah, the, the words of God, rather than trusting God, uh, he didn't see any way out. And so uh, he, he trusted the king of Assyria. Now, you think about this in global politics. It makes a bit of sense that you know, he's, he's, he's got the northern kingdom with these kings aligned against him. And so he thinks, what are we going to do? And here's what I'm going to use this phrase. He reaches out to the king of Assyria. I mean, the king of Assyria is the most powerful king, okay? So I'm going to go get, I'm going to get a better king to beat you guys. He reaches out to an earthly king rather than reaching up and taking hold of the promise of God. That's the picture I'd like in your head. He reached out rather than reaching up to hold to the very promise of God. When the circumstances of your life and mine get to the place, and they do, and you're there now, many of us, where you're going, I don't see how this is going to work out. I have, this is not going well. This is not what I hope. When you find yourself in that place, you and I have the very same choice that King Ahaz had to make in his day and the people of Judah. Will I reach out to an earthly king or will I reach up and hold to the promise of God? Uh, when I say we trust earthly kings, I'm speaking of anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm just going to say this. Anything that we trust in, anything we go to to relieve the hurt, anything we grab hold of to take care and fill the loss, anything we put our confidence in to give us, what does the child give? To give us peace, hope, life. See, so reach for anything for that, other than Christ, and you've reached for an earthly king. Another way to describe that would be you've reached for an, an idol. I thought about listing some of these things, and I thought, well, we really don't even need to list it because you and I know when we do it. I mean, and the bottom line is, if, it does, if our hand doesn't go up to the promise, whatever we're holding on to is an earthly king. Now, here's the great challenge of faith. And this is a principle, again, I'm kind of going in a back way here, but we're going to find something in, in, in Isaiah that leads us to this faith principle that I, I, I think we need. This is the great challenge of faith. It was true for them, and it's true for you and I. When life is difficult, and it's hard, and, and again, I'm, just, I'm speaking to the choir. We've got challenges in all of our lives. But when there, it often seems way more reasonable to grab an earthly king than to hold on to the promise of God. It just, I don't know how, I'll say, it just, it just makes more sense to reach for the earthly king than hold to the promise of God. Think about Ahaz and the, the people of Judah. Would it not 
if you're facing these unbelievable odds and these kings are aligned against you, does you would, there, would their mind, would it be natural to go, man, who do we know that we can call to get some help? The king of Assyria, he's stronger than all those guys put together. Give him a call. I mean, that seems reasonable. What seems more reasonable? Call the king of Assyria or believe the promise of God, a child. I mean, God, we're surrounded. We're getting ready to go down. Uh, just, we need a king of Assyria. And God says, I'm going to send you a child. Uh, that sounds, I'm going to use this word, that sounds foolish. That, that, that doesn't make sense. And so we reach for the earthly king. It would be helpful, wouldn't it, if, if maybe God in this moment, he cracked the door and he said, look, Trust the child. And then it makes sense to trust a child. Look, trust my promise. And then if he cracked the door and said, let me show you how I work. Let me show you why it's wiser to trust the foolishness of God than the wisdom of men. And I think here in Isaiah, he cracks the door and he gives us this little glimmer and it sends us on a little bit of a, a, little bit of a detour, so, sort of, a little different story. But he gives us this picture that I think contains this, this principle of faith that we need so that we'll hold on to the promise of God. Follow along in your Bibles. I'm going to read parts of Isaiah 9. It begins this way, but there will be no more. This is the promise of the, the Prince of Peace who's coming. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Stop right there for a moment because I want you to know, I just want you to take for granted that this whole section is speaking of Christ. We know it's speaking of Christ and in part we know because Matthew, when he writes his gospel account of Jesus' life, when Jesus begins his public ministry, Matthew 3, uh, 12, to 13, 12 to 16, when he begins his public ministry, Matthew, Jesus is literally walking out of Galilee. He's literally in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. He's coming out of that, and Matthew quotes Isaiah 9.1 to say, Isaiah 9.1 is talking about Jesus. He's the light coming out of this land. And it goes on, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. When Messiah comes, he's gonna, he will gladden your hearts just like when the harvest comes in. Yeah, we got the harvest just as in soldiers. They win a battle. Yes, divide the spoil. See, this is the gladness that Messiah brings. Speaking of Messiah, he says, for you, this is speaking of uh, Jesus, you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. And then he goes on, of course, the child will be born, the government will rest on his shoulders, wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, no end to his government. You see the promises there through the child. It's this phrase, though, as at the battle of Midian. Literally, it reads, as in the day of Midian. 
Right before we get to the son is given, the child's right before he says, as at the day of Midian. And I think it unlocks in their minds and Ken is in ours as well. This picture, oh God, that's how you keep your promise. If I said to you, it was like the days of 9-11. Immediately, most of us have in our mind's eye, 9-11. That was a bad day. That was not good. And you've got pictures, and you've got images, and you've got, you see, you're transported back just by the phrase, 9-11. The same is true. When the original readers are reading this, and he says, as in the day of Midian, boom. Oh my gosh, they're like, the day of Midian. Ooh, that was a bad day. And so, what I'd like to do is take us on a little historical journey to step back a thousand years prior to the birth of Christ and think about the day of Midian. Now to do that, we step back and we find ourselves in the book of Judges. Book of Judges chapter 6 verse 1 says this, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. Seven years in the hands of Midian. What did that mean? Those of you familiar with the story, you know this, that in those days, that when Israel would plant their crops, work all season long, they go out to get their crops. Right when they got their crops, right when everything was in bloom, the Midianites would descend on the land. I mean, like, like mosquitoes, just descend on the land. Hordes would come down and take your food that you'd been working for all year, and then they would take all of their, their livestock, turn it loose, and the livestock would gobble up everything that was left in the land, and then the Midianites would go away and wait for the next year for you to plant your crops so we could come eat your food again. I mean, they were, they were the ultimate bullies, you know? It's like, um, it's like the, uh, the, the opening scene uh, of A Bug's Life. You remember that? Remember, they just, you know, everybody's going along with the seeds, planting the seeds. They put the seeds up on there, and everybody steps back, and who comes? Hopper, you know, the grasshoppers, those darn grasshoppers. And they took all their food that they had worked for. This is, this is what it was like to live in the day of Midian in Israel. You, you, you had no security, constant fear. Are they coming today? Everything I've worked for, it'll be gone. When God called Gideon, he was in a wine press beating the wheat. You don't beat wheat in a wine press. Well, you do if the Midians are out because you need to find a low place so you can do it. Maybe they won't see the dust rise and I can eat a little bread tonight. It was a horrible, dark time in the days of Israel. Went on for seven straight years. think that we, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we all live right now in our own day of Midian. Last time I checked, everything's not right. It's not in my world. I doubt it's in yours. Bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Injustice seems to reign in a, you know, it's out of control. So many wrongs, you see. 
we live in the same uncertainty and security, we certainly can. Life on this planet full of danger, strife, and injustice. You know, as, as, a, as a staff member here, elders, uh, many of you who, who, who are on a prayer team, every week we get um, prayer requests from you. So you write in and say, would you pray for this? And there's some great stories, great things. But I'm going to tell you, when I read them, my heart, there's this part of me that just goes, those darn Midianites. You know, you just, just eating away at our hope. You see, when, when, when Isaiah made this amazing promise, Judah was in their day of Midian. I mean, the, the walls are about to go down. I mean, this is a bad time when this brilliant promise comes to be. And they, like us, could be asking, I mean, will things ever be right? I mean, will, will it ever be the way it ought to be? Well, the answer is yes, it will be. But here's where our faith gets tripped up. I can't see how it will be from where I am. So how do I take hold of faith? How do I believe that there's a way out, a way forward, and it will be that way one day? And Isaiah opens it up to us and says, the day of Midian. And what you and I can do is we can follow the story. The day of Midian, those days. It was like in those days. And what did God do in the day of Midian? Okay, because this is how God, how does God get rid of Midianites? Well, let's go back. In that day, God raised up a nobody. And this nobody had a small band who did something really foolish on the battlefield. And through them, God delivered the nation. How about that? That's what God did. Think about the story. I'm not going to read it, Judges 7, but I think many would remember the story of Gideon. You know that God called him and said, deliver the nation from these darn Midianites. And he's going, I can't do this, but God calls him. He assembles 32,000 soldiers. That's fantastic. Here's the problem. There's 135,000 Midianites. And then, bigger problem, God says, you have too many. And so God says, anyone who's scared goes home. Unfortunately for Gideon, 22,000 go home. You know, and then, and then, and then, so Gideon's kind of like, okay, 10,000 against 135,000 is fantastic. And God says, you have too many. I, I think Gideon's going, what are you talking about? You know, we're, we're going backwards here. This is unbelievable troop reduction, right? He keeps getting rid of them. And God says, you, you have too many because I don't want you to, I don't want this victory to come and you to think I did it. You know, we did it. We were, we're strong, you know. So God says, no, you're going to go through the drink test. You remember he has them go down and drink water and certain ones drink a certain way. And all those guys had to go home as well. And so the ones that went home on that troop reduction, 9,700. And I have to believe that Gideon was going, no, 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 Lord. 300 go home, the 9,000 stay. But God says, no, the 9,700 go and Gideon's got 300 men. And God says, now you're gonna, I'm going to deliver 135,000 into your hand. You talk about silliness. You talk about something you'd never do on the battlefield. They go into the battlefield and they've got trumpets, torches, and pitchers. It's pitch black. They go around the Midianites. I mean, it's just 300 of them. They crack the, 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 the jars, you know, the pitchers that are holding the torches and they hold up their lights, and next thing you know, 135,000 Midianites start killing each other. They go crazy. 
They start running. They're just wiped out, getting in the, in the, in the troops going. So, so we go, God, in an impossible situation, you know, everything in me wants to reach for the earthly. Everything in me says, this will satisfy, this will rescue me. And your promise seems so a baby? It seems so. Like, I don't know how this is going to work. In the day of Midian, God raised up a nobody. And he put him in a circumstance was unwinnable from a human perspective. And he invited him to trust the promise. And God used him to deliver the whole move forward. A thousand years, a baby's born. And what did most in Israel think of this baby? Nothing. It's just a baby. This is not a king. Move forward 2,000 more years, 2014. You've got a problem. Your life's not where you hoped it would be. You got challenges. There's, there's Midianites all around us all the time. And God says, Will you trust me? And you're going, well, if you give me a few more troops, I'll trust you. If you do, you know, right? Think about it this way. God could have delivered uh, the nation from the Midianites. Can you think of the ways he could have done it? I mean, he could have just spit and drowned them all. I don't know. He could have flicked his hand. He could have done anything. He, he didn't, really didn't even need 300, right? God didn't need 300. But God kept reducing the troops. And one way I've thought about this is maybe God, because God said, I don't want you to think it was you. I want you to understand that I am your only hope. Just me, just me, just me. And so God said, uh, let go of that earthly king. Let go of that one. Let go of that one until he just got to the place where God, I mean, this is, there's no way unless you do it. And then God said, good, because I want your heart, you see, Judah, I want your heart to understand that there's no satisfaction in life. There's no fulfillment. There's no hope. There's, there's really nothing unless it's just me. And if it's just me, I know your heart. I made it. And if you'll make it just me, you'll have everything and more. And so he eliminates all that we would trust in and says, will you, will you trust me in this? Can I say it this way? Will you trust me in this foolishness? And that's how God keeps his promise, even today. Matthew Henry made an interesting observation. He said, if God makes former deliverances, his patterns in working for us, we ought to make them our encouragements to hope in him and seek him, end quote. What is he saying? He's saying, if God, made a, if God delivered a certain way and we read about how he did things, then we ought to reach over and grab those things and say, yeah, that's how he'll do it for me today because that's how he works and how he delivers. The way that God delivered his people in the day of Midian, it looks and sounds like foolishness. Paul, writing of God's plan to rescue a lost people, would say this, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. There's really no reason for you and I to shy away from the fact that a baby born of a virgin in a manger in Bethlehem sounds crazy. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to, I wouldn't even look at someone and say, can't you see how obvious this is? Because it's not. It looks foolish. And it makes sense to me why. 
You know, I mean, at least in our country, we would keep removing Christ from Christmas because, you know, it just, that's craziness. Sounds like a myth. I'm not, gonna, I'm not even going to argue with that. It does sound crazy. But the eyes of faith look and see God with drool on his face. Don't miss this. You know, there's a reason that Isaiah introduced this thought of Gideon. Did you notice in the passage when I read it, there's darkness, there's light. It's dark, but there's light. Do you remember in the story of Gideon? God could have done it any way, but how did God deliver them? They had torches with a pitcher over it. They cracked the pitcher and they held up the light. Now think about this. There's only 300 torches. I mean, that's a big deal, 300 torches. But you see, 300 torches in the hand of God is like 300 suns with white hot light extinguishing God's enemies. And a baby's born and no one notices. But John would say of this baby, Jesus is the light of the world. He's the light of truth. If if you remember anything from today, I hope you would remember this. Gideon's story, which we draw out of Isaiah's promise, is about faith in the foolishness of God. The story of Christmas is no different. Faith in the foolishness of God. And the story of your life and mine. Right now, there's, there's something going on in your world right now that God's inviting you to trust in His foolishness. Because it doesn't make sense to you. It's like, this just doesn't make sense. And God invites you to trust His foolishness rather than reaching for the reasonable earthly king. Many, many years ago, we were decorating our Christmas tree. Sally was just one, so Darden's like six, and Susan's four. They're tiny, and Lisa kind of turned it loose on us to let us decorate the tree. And uh, we kind of got into a, hey, let's surprise mom with this Christmas tree. Let's, let, let's show her how good we can do it. And so I'm, me and the kids were decorating the tree. And uh, we get it all done, and of course, you know, of course it's not perfect. You know, lights aren't exactly right, or, you know, however we would do it with little kids like that. But uh, right at the end, we kind of broke into an orchestrated pandemonium, and the kids said, let's turn off all the lights, you know, turn off all the lights. So, so they run throughout the house, and they turn off all the lights. In, and we're downstairs in the living room. They go up to the upstairs bedrooms and turn off all those lights. You know, I can't get them to do that today, but they turn off all the lights <laughs> in the house. And uh, so now the house is dark. We come down and we're ready to bring Lisa in to see the trees. And the last thing I said, Dad, 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 you got to cut off the gas logs. You know, just a little ember glowing from the Cut off the gas logs. We bring Lisa in. The tree, of course, not perfect. But I'm going to tell you something. In that eerie darkness, bam. I mean, it's like, you know, it's just, there's the tree. There it is. And all its brilliance and, and glory. 
And see, when I go through this and spending this time in, in, in Isaiah, there's a sense to which, man, that's kind of a downer of a message, you know, kind of dark. And I go, no, 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 I think that, I think that it's in the darkness that we see most clearly the brilliance and the beauty of God's foolishness, which shames the world. And in this Advent season, I'm going to invite you in these moments to sit quietly in the dark as I bring the house lights down, and I just want you to sit, and I want you to gaze on the wonder of a baby, a child that was given to us, given for us, a baby. I mean, well, well, I got kings to deal with, and you give a baby. Oh, yes, this is God's son. And maybe as you gaze upon this child, what comes to your mind is a challenge of faith in your life right now. And there's a part of you that maybe kind of is like, you know, the baby can't handle that. Uh, Or, I just don't know how God's going to do this. Of course you don't. Neither do I. But God invites us to trust him rather than reaching for the earthly king, rather than reaching for the reasonable. Will we grab what seems foolish? And will we trust? Would you ponder that for a moment? Father, there's so much about this picture that we, we, we just can't make sense of. It's just not the way we'd have done it. But in your infinite wisdom, you knew it was the only way. For how else could the sin of humanity be dealt with but that it was through a human being? But how does a human being satisfy the wrath of an infinite God? Well, it would have to be God. And in this great mystery of the incarnation, the baby's given through the Virgin Mary, fully God, fully man, the only one qualified, capable to live a perfect life and then freely choose to die on behalf of all of us to pay the penalty for all of our sin, to satisfy the infinite wrath of a holy God, a just God. Oh, this mystery is great. And the truth is, we cannot fully get our head around it. But we believe. Ours, Father, we know is a reasonable faith. It's not that you invite us to trust What's not true, but you do invite us to trust many things we cannot fully comprehend. And Lord, if we could fully comprehend you, uh, well, you'd be like us, and you're not. And so would you grant through the stories of the Old Testament, the story of Gideon in the day of Midian, grant us eyes to see that you delivered in a way that seemed silly, dangerous, foolish, 
And God, you still do that today. By your spirit, would you grant us eyes to see clearly, brightly, that you're at work, that you're faithful to your promise. And Lord, I know there are times even in my life where when I'm reaching for the earthly king, I really really do need your spirit to kind of pop my hand and then to grab it and to pull it upward that I would take hold of you. May we do so anew and afresh in this Advent season. In Christ's name, amen. Let me invite you to stand, please, as I send you out. I'll send you out with a word from Peter, which draws on these very themes of light and darkness and the promise of God. Peter says to us, 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God bless.